I can't believe a Muppet fan like you has not seen Labyrinth, Adam. I do enjoy Muppets. This time we watched Season 11, Episode 10, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom. The movie that proves that all you need is a good MacGuffin to keep going. But first, some follow-up involving dynamic violence and spectacular thrills. We finally saw Godzilla, the original. Yes, and not the Raymond Burr recut version for American audiences, uncut original Japanese edition. And it's available at megaphonic.fm slash scene. For clarification, the movie is not available for uh, for download at Seat of the Scene. But our discussion uh, that we had after the film, because I finally sat down with uh, Beth and producer Chris to watch it, will be available at that link, and it'll be in the show notes as well. Also, last episode, we talked about whether we ever binge-watched MST3K, and the answer is we don't. So, uh, listener Jeff commented on Twitter, It always strikes me as odd when you mention apps you haven't seen. I definitely binged the show before it was a thing. So I guess we should maybe answer that. Why haven't we seen all the episodes? <laughs> a terrible curse preventing <laughs> me from completion. I always have to edge with MST3K, Beth. <laughs> well, um, it's more a question of old versus new MST3K. Because the old one, it was just, a lot of it was just kind of lack of access for a very long time. And then... At a certain point, I had seen so much that I didn't feel the need to go back and fill the gaps because I had my favorites, and that was kind of what I went back to. Yeah, I I had something kind of similar. I mean, I started off with tape trading, which was easier than downloading episodes in the 90s. And then as time went on, like when I got to university, I had a plan. I think I mentioned this before on the show of seeing the entire series in order. And I very excitedly got through what was available of KTMA at the time. Mm -hmm. And then when we got to season one, I found season one hard going and gave up my plan (laughs) because I found much the same way. It's like, oh, there are my favorite episodes and I've seen 70% at that time, like say in the early 2000s, like 70% of the show, I can always save discovering new episodes for commercial releases or later when YouTube started doing the marathons, those Turkey Day marathons. And I found too that I kind of like that I haven't kind of uh, worn out the original series and that I get to still be surprised and delighted by the show every once in a while when I find an uncovered gem that I hadn't seen before. And I I kind of like that I haven't exhausted that yet. Yes. For the purpose, especially for the purposes of this podcast, it's nice to come to an episode that you have no memory of and have never seen. Like I, I got a real kick out of seeing King Dinosaur, which was a totally brand new episode to me and one that I really enjoyed. And I'm sure there's going to be episodes like that in the future. Now, I think it's a different question about why we haven't watched the new season on Netflix, because it's basically, like, it couldn't be easier to binge. Speak for yourself. I have watched all of it. Oh, you have watched all of them. Yes. Okay. Well, my main answer is I have a kid. You know, I've got a good two hours a night where I can watch something. So it's it's kind of like sometimes I, I have to use that two hours for other things besides MST3K. Yes, because you can't stop rewatching Dog the Bounty Hunter. <laughs> 
But I, I did get an opportunity to see this strangely kid-focused movie, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom. Adam, do you want to tell us about it? Sure, let's jump into this. With magic. This time we watched Season 11, Episode 10, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom. Welcome to the Kingdom of Axholm, a state founded on magic and footage from other Roger Corman productions. It is an age previously seen by man. In the confusing opening montage, we learn of a magic sword and a ring of power. The sword is lost forever after an uprising by a kindly peasant, now king, named Tyler. Onward to our 75% new footage. Young wizard Simon is being asked for his hand in marriage by the eager princess Aura. To calm her down, Simon performs a magic trick that brings a gargoyle to life. Naturally, with consciousness comes much screaming. This is interrupted by sheepdog Wookiee Gulfax, who brings them to Simon's wizard dad, Wolfric. Wolfric warns that the kingdom is under attack by the evil Shurka, a wizard wearing an evil version of Jughead's whoopee cap. Seems King Tyler has been deceived by Queen Udea, who has been in cahoots and knocking boots with Shurka this entire time. Simon's wizard father, Wolfric, sends his son away with a magic ring, but Simon drops it just before he and Gulfax get teleported. The ring ends up hidden away in the castle. With Axome under Shurka's rule, Simon and Gulfax only have one chance to restore order, get back to the castle and find the magic ring. As they make their way back, they're almost instantly captured, but are saved by Kor the Conqueror, a self-described warrior with a bod like late period Shatner. Kor is hesitant to help Simon, but decides to join the boy when he spies a mysterious figure with a horned helmet in the distance. More on that later. What follows is a series of set pieces, often with footage shot for this very movie. First, Simon is seduced by a minion of Shurka's, who shows him footage from another sword and sorcery movie, this one with a red griffin. The woman later turns out to be a spider, but Simon is saved from the spider woman's kiss by Kor. The trio of Simon, Gulfax, and Kor press on. Other time-killing adventures include Simon's failed attempt to raise an army of the dead, the trio rescuing David the Gnome from some lizard creatures, Kor singing to ghosts, dinosaur puppet on dinosaur puppet violence, a shotgun cyclops wedding, that was the guy in the helmet earlier. And a mermaid who swims in fudge. Back at Axholm, Shurka hypnotizes young Aura to become his queen. Udea tries to arrest Shurka, but she finds that her guards are loyal only to the evil wizard. Their wedding plans are dashed when Kor and Simon free Shurka's many prisoners. The prisoners take care of the guards, while Simon, now equipped with a ring, engages in an 80s animation battle with Shurka like their Egg Shin and David Lopan. Shurka loses. Aura is free from hypnosis and resumes crushing on Simon. The people celebrate. The day is saved. But Kor, never one to stay in one place, walks off into the sunset. All right, now on to the segments. The show opens on Max, who is furiously scrawling in his diary, declaring that his love for Kinga burns with the intensity of a thousand supernovas. He also notes that he has found a weird key, which he's currently wearing, and isn't sure what it unlocks. How's that for exposition? Then he immediately notices a slot that he had previously been putting mail in. Turning the key unlocks some kind of centipedal ceiling robot who acknowledges with a sage nod that, yes, indeed, Max is now his master. In the invention exchange, Jonah and the bots offer up verbal smoke bombs. When stuck in an awkward conversation, take after the ninjas from feudal Japan. Conversation-ending gambits for every occasion. The cards include, gotta go, can't feel my arms. Meanwhile, Max and Kinga have another clock-themed invention, the Sponsor Clock, in which the naming rights to the hours of the days have been sold to corporate sponsors. 5 o'clock is literally Miller time. 8 o'clock is Weight Watchers. 
and both 7 and 11 are 7-Eleven. In the next segment, Servo is skeptical that Core could have conquered anything. The three of them play around with the various ways in which the concept of conquering could have been stretched to justify the hero's title. Like, maybe he won on a technicality when the warlock he was battling had to leave the fight to pick up his kid from soccer practice. Or maybe he got a high score on Frogger at the pizza parlor. In the next segment, Servo plays Simon, our prepubescent lead, who is in a snit because the undead warriors he summoned didn't work out. Jonah then sings a doo-wop song about the fact that Simon is going through changes. In other words, Simon's mastering of his magical abilities is likened to puberty and, to some extent, ejaculation. In the next segment, Jonah reads a letter from a fan. In the final segment, Jonah unveils the Wizards of the Lost Kingdom Suicide Cave, a place that feeds on fear playset. Brave the ghosts of ineffectiveness. Face the irritation of that flying thing. Dare to challenge the puppet dragon that couldn't move past its rock. The episode closes with Kinga revealing that there is a second Wizards of the Lost Kingdom movie, and the boys are going to watch it next. Well, this marks our first visit with the Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, and as promised, there will be more. Beth, what did you make of this episode? This episode was so much fun to watch. I enjoyed every minute of it. It was such a joy to see them at their best. It wasn't perfect. It does have that uh, season 11 issue where sometimes the jokes are just a little bit too too rapid and they don't give uh, quite enough space to just let the movie breathe a bit. But, I mean, the jokes were good. And they obviously had a lot of fun with this movie. It's it's obvious that they weren't being dragged down by this movie, which was also uh, nice to just have that atmosphere about it. I think that if this is a great movie to introduce the new season to people who maybe haven't seen MST3K before. See, I found with the previous episode, we had a, a terrible movie that was livened up by some great riffing. Here, I think I love Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, the movie, but I hated this episode. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't get anything out of it. I think that the first 15 or so minutes, like when they're doing that prologue that is just made up of footage from other Corman movies and more on that later, I got a lot out of it because I think the rapid fire riffing works really well in montages, but also that I think the best jokes are kind of at the beginning. And after a while, it's like, well, you either find that joke about... Uh, the evil wizard's hat looking like a crab. You either find that hysterical or you don't, and I didn't. <laughs> well, it's admittedly, like, I'm looking at my notes, and nothing, there were no moments when that really, like, there was not a gem of a line that'll keep with me forever. They were kind of like, they made a good joke, I laughed and it moved on. But I kind of liked that. Like, it was just, it. they were good companions for the film. There's only one time that I laughed out loud, and that was the very first joke, which is as soon as the gong is heard, uh, Crow screams, Mortal Kombat! <laughs> and I, I I died at that, uh, uh, as that is a reference that 90s kids will know, uh, copyright BuzzFeed. <laughs> but for, for the most part, yeah, this episode didn't do it for me, but I love the, like, I, I love early 80s sword and sorcery movies. Oh, me too. They're so much fun. Yeah. So I, I got a lot out of watching this movie. It was loads of fun. The effects are lovably cheesy. Uh, there's some really bad puppet work, some delightful ghosts. Uh, the Cyclops monster that looks vaguely like actor Robert Forrester is really neat. 
Uh, and and he he has a sister who's dressed up in a white wedding dress for his wedding to Kor. And Kor the Barbarian isn't a, a muscular barbarian dude, but is in fact your dad. <laughs> Beth, did you ever uh, get curious to ask your dad about what it was like working on the Wizards of the Lost Kingdom set? <laughs> Uh, it, it was funny to see somebody who <laughs> is basically like a dad, a dad bod, you know, mm. someone who works out once in a while. But, uh, but I mean, he was, he was likable, yeah. which is more than I can say about our former Deathstalker hero. Oh my God. Yeah. Like Bo Svensson has corny Deathstalkery things to do in the script, but he has... I would say dad charm. Like he sells the bad jokes. Like when he is looking back on the warriors harming themselves and he has to do that. Ooh, that's got to hurt face. Like <laughs> he's really charming doing that. I think because this guy has loads of charisma, whereas the death stalker from death stalker three did not. But we should also mention this is a Roger Corman film, just like kind of death stalker was. Uh, yes, I think, uh, New Classics. This is New World Pictures. And New Classics was a division of New Horizons, which is, I think, what happened when Corman sold off the company. Like, he did eventually sell off New World Pictures and New Horizons. However, just to instantly contradict myself, Corman produced the great Carnosaur. <laughs> <laughs> And that was from New Horizons. So I think he still would have had a, had a stake in the company. I don't know how much of a say he would have had with New Classics, which was the company for uh, Deathstalker 3. But he's he's tangentially involved. He's the one who got the Deathstalker ball rolling after all. I was actually stunned when I did a little bit of research into this movie, how little... Because so much of this movie reminded me of Deathstalker. Mm -hmm. uh, the <laughs> There's a reason for that. <laughs> well the theme song was used at some point the Deathstalker theme song the end credits even some of the beats of the plot are very similar for instance the villain kind of rejecting his loyal hench lady for a younger model that was you know eerily the same not to mention the whole thing about raising warriors from the dead even though it happens <laughs> for like two minutes in this movie exactly but looking through Besides Tom Christopher, who plays the villain in, in both movies, there's no shared crew on either of these movies. So I'm kind of shocked that they're so similar. But maybe you have some insights into why that was. Well, I would say that they're just formulaic sword and sorcery movies. I will I will say this. You'll notice that there, we're talking about footage from these other movies. Mm -hmm. And every single shot in the prologue, Every single shot is taken from either Deathstalker or another movie called Sorceress. Mm -hmm. And those two movies are two of the most fun movies I've watched in the past year. Uh, they're both extremely goofy films. And then almost all the later footage that you see where you're clearly being transported to another movie, like when that amazing Griffin creature shows up to fight a lady's face, that's all taken from Sorceress. I was going to say, because, like, this movie is cute, but that moment felt like something out of Baron Munchausen. <laughs> yeah, it's... Sorceress is a wild ride. Uh, it is about two twin, often topless ladies with magic powers. <laughs> they are the two who are one. 
and they are essentially being hunted down by an evil wizard to stop a prophecy or something. And there is all sorts of wacky puppety goodness that uh, that happens. A lot of uh, traditional animated laser type battles that you see. It's not a good movie. It's an extremely entertaining movie. It's one of the most entertaining movies I've watched. Oh, let's hope MST3K gets to do it someday. Oh, man. Well, they've they've already taken the original Deathstalker on the road. If they can get the rights to Sorceress, this will be one hell of a season. One of the writers for this movie, Edward Naha, kind of explained why there were a few similarities uh, in Roger Corman's Sword and Sandal movies in the 80s. Uh, yes, there is this great quote from him. And I will read it as follows. I don't think this movie was so much shot as it was beaten to death. When they whittled it down to what was useful from the footage, it only ran 58 minutes. Now, Roger, as in Roger Corman, had done a lot of sword and sorcery films. And so he told a couple of the editors to pull all the footage that they could from them and edit that footage in. So now the finished movie has a 15 or 20 minute prologue that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. So why would they whittle it down so much to put themselves in a situation where they had to add something back in that was from a different movie? See, this is something I've only heard of recently because that that doesn't make sense to me usually. But I found out about a little movie uh, that was called Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps you have heard of it. And they essentially had the same problem. So I think this happens with novice filmmakers, which, of course... Corman specializes it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you shoot everything that's there in the script and you only end up with a handful of scenes that are all like you could edit this down to like 90 minutes, but you would just have longer scenes. You wouldn't necessarily have a full or compelling story and you would slow down the pacing quite a bit. So in order to like provide some kind of setup and context, they had like once they finally edited the movie down to its best takes and the scenes to the most relevant information, because of course you always cut down scenes from the script, they found out, I think, in post-production that it's like, oh, we didn't really have enough script. The script had more fat in it than we realized. Hmm, okay. That makes sense. This does move from set piece to set piece quite quickly. Yeah, and and I guess they were hoping that the run-ins in Suicide Cavern, which do feature original effects, such as the ghosties that show up and the dinosaur puppets, <laughs> would perhaps take longer than they did. Like, maybe they thought that these uh, these lengthy set pieces would be the bulk of the movie, but they just run off so quickly like you really this feels more like something that was edited down from a tv series than time of the apes does <laughs> slightly more coherent if only slightly so adam i mentioned already that one of the things i immediately noticed was that the death stalker theme song uh is used kind of in the middle of this movie it just kind of comes out of nowhere and it's the one orchestral bit that was in the the Deathstalker we watched. So I was wondering if you had any insights as a soundtrack nerd about why that was. Well, yes, this is where we find little James Horner all in the scorner. But let's not talk about him yet. Okay. Let's instead talk about Christopher Young, the second credited composer. 
Now, Chris Young is a composer of note. He is very much tied to the horror genre and did a few uh, pictures for Corman Productions, most notably a film called Hell on Wheels and another film called Defcon 4. And you're hearing music from one, possibly both of those films, as far as I could tell, for some of the like tenser, weirder, less James Hornery kind of cues. And they do kind of stick out, at least to my ears. Most notably, there's uh, a really tense piece of music that is very ill-suited to the scene that is playing when, uh, remember that scene in the Cyclops shotgun wedding set piece where a guy can't stop swinging Core's sword? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's swinging around like a kid who's like trying his very first uh, attempt at batting uh, for the local t-ball team, and is just going out of control. Uh, that is definitely Chris Young, and so that immediately stood out to me. And there's a couple of places where a small bit of Chris Young's music is used, but mostly it's Horner's. A few things about uh, Chris Young that I think are interesting. So Corman would recycle music, as was common. Uh, with his productions and funnily enough on the going back to the topic of Godzilla when that was rebooted in the mid 80s uh, music from DEFCON 4 which again gets recycled in this movie would be used for Godzilla 1984 aka Godzilla 1985 when it was released recut and redubbed by Corman. Young is very active today he's best known I think for uh, working on the Hellraiser movies and comp- composing the bulk of the first and second film score and thus providing the template for how that whole film series sounds. Uh, he scored the second Nightmare on Elm Street and he scored the popular Ethan Hawke horror movie Sinister just a few years ago. Oh, nice. Yes. My favorite thing about him is in an interview, he said he grew up with a Beatles poster and a Bela Lugosi poster. And that's his origin story. <laughs> loves music, loves horror movies. Christopher Young. <laughs> But the bulk of this score is done by James Horner, and you're right in that you did hear the theme from Deathstalker, or as it originally was, the theme from a Star Wars ripoff called Battle from Beyond the Stars, or Battle Beyond the Stars. And that was done by James Horner, and that's essentially a carbon copy of uh, the Star Trek The Motion Picture score by Jerry Goldsmith, (laughs) (laughs) to the point where... The Star Trek The Motion Picture score famously used a uh, instrument called the blaster beam. Uh, are you familiar with that? No, not at all. Okay. So the blaster beam is this uh, big metal beam, uh, <laughs> and it's strung along with a bunch of wires. So imagine a terrifying metallic sitar, and you're kind of there. <laughs> and so you strike that with like a metal tube, or at least that's what I've seen in uh, people playing it live on YouTube. And you strike that beam and you create all these harsh, tense, metallic sounds. Uh, This was created by Craig Huxley, son of Aldous. Oh. Yeah. And Goldsmith used that to uh, create an otherworldly sound for the threat in Star Trek The Motion Picture. And James Horner just randomly uses either the beam itself or a sound alike in, uh, in terms of a synth throughout his score for Battle Beyond the Stars. Okay. And so you're hearing that throughout Wizards of the Lost Kingdom. You'll often hear this bow, bow kind of metallic sound. And that's him attempting to evoke the Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, soundtrack. That's not entirely on him, though. When Battle Beyond the Stars was being made, it was essentially temp-tracked to death. So he was more or less ordered to copy that score. 
Oh, really? Yeah, so you're hearing a reuse of a score that is plagiarized. <laughs> it still has enough, I think, hornerisms to be... To stand up in court? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, in much the same way that you uh, would not take Danny Elfman to court over, you know, borrowing a bit from Nino Rota for uh, his Pee-wee's Big Adventure score, uh, you would not necessarily take Horner to court over his Jerry Goldsmith uh, borrowings. But, you know, Horner, as a composer, you know, really does not need help in the plagiarism department because he would copy himself all the time. Mm. Like if you listen to this score and you've watched the movie Crawl or you've seen Star Trek 2 and 3 or you've even watched Avatar or parts of Titanic, you've heard this score already. James Horner? Ah, yes. Braveheart, Aliens, Avatar, and this movie. Yeah, when Cameron was scoring Titanic, he said, I want that Wizards of Lost Kingdom sound. Oh, interesting. Yeah, James Horner recycles himself, or did. I mean, he's since passed away. But James Horner used to recycle himself all the time, and he was notorious for it. And a lot of people didn't like him for that. Like, he was a not terribly well-regarded composer in the soundtrack fan community. Like a lot of people got fed up with the fact that it's like, if you've heard one James Horner score, you've heard all of them. I still really like him, but I kind of view him the same way that I view the kinks in that, you know, when they could, they did, you really got me. They liked that riff so much that they did it 48 more times. <laughs> That's true. If, if it works, keep going with it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I, I have to say, like, I I really like uh, I really like Horner's sound. Like, he owes, obviously, a lot to Prokofiev. And, like, a lot of his work sounds a lot like Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. But you know what? It's it's as you said before. It's like, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So this movie is essentially a kid's movie in that our protagonist, Simon, is a, a, a young lad. And it's so it's kind of in the mold of, say, the never-ending story. And that it's it's kind of following a Bildungsroman kind of development from, you know, a young, untested boy into... Uh, older, more experienced man and boy, I suppose. Uh, but one of the things that this involves oftentimes is dealing with that whole, you know, puberty situation. And so there's some really weird moments in this movie where Simon is uh, attracted to much older women. Well, he, he is seduced by a spider woman, and that I think is a <laughs> rite of passage for every young boy. <laughs> Well, I mean, we should start that he's betrothed to uh, a princess. Why a princess marries the son of a wizard, I don't quite understand. Yeah. But uh, and that's a very chaste relationship. Like, they're mostly just playmates. But this movie introduces the idea that he is literally going to have sex with what turns out to be a spider woman, but looks like a woman who's about 25. Yes, and I like her. I like her move. I like her move, which is that, hey... I want you to get Ray to have sex with me. So let's watch the movie Sorceress. <laughs> she basically pulls him into what is suggested is some kind of orgy. And then kind of lays him down and uh, kind of just bewitches him. And it's never really clear because we do see at least one other young man there. Is that part of, like, the vision of the Spider-Woman? Were there other people there? And and did the Spider-Woman have other victims? I got the sense that they were all 
just part of the illusion. Okay. They weren't really there. Because don't, don't they start repeating as soon as Korra gets there or something like that? Or I forget. But hmm. uh, what's even more weird is this is not something you would ever see in a movie today. The suggestion that an adult and a kid could get it on. Well, I don't know. I Like, I don't know if you would, it, like, hmm. I think that if this were about a wizardess, then yes. I don't think you'd have a scene of, like, uh, a, a magical male seducer. I still think that you would probably have a scene in which a teen boy is tempted by an older woman. I think that's, like, such a trope of, like, sex comedies about, like, teen boys. Yeah, but those... Uh- when you see about something like American Pie, like they're usually like legal, right? They're like eighteen. They're coded as legal. Whereas something like this seems like something that happened a lot more in the eighties, but seems to, I think, with kind of the advent of feminism and ideas of consent and can, you know, young people really consent and that kind of power differential seems to have become something you can't do anymore. Hey Beth. Yeah. How old do you think that actor was? Forty five. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the actor, Simon? Simon, yeah. Um, he looked quite prepubescent, actually. Oh, it, it, I would say he was at least 13. He's he's clearly not prepubescent. He's clearly in the throes of puberty. Okay, so maybe 14? He was, he was 16 or 17. Okay. Hmm. Still a bit of, well, okay. Still a bit of a, you know, not, not right. I don't know. Like, I, I think that if it was a human older woman that he was seriously tempted by instead of an evil spy door, <laughs> then, then yes. But like, I, I can still see a young boy being tempted by uh, an evil monster lady. <laughs> I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I, I wouldn't be surprised if like, if they decided for whatever reason to do a remake of wizards of the lost kingdom with the exact same script. I don't think that section would go anywhere. It would probably have entirely new footage. It probably would not cut to sorceress at any point, but it would be rad if it did. Hmm. But that's about it. Yeah, I don't. I don't see that. No. Well, I, I have a hard time thinking of anything that has that dynamic anymore. I mean, it kind of reminds me of how Tom Hanks's movie Big has become in present politics like a very skeevy movie because you basically have Tom Hanks playing a twelve-year-old being seduced by a much older lady and people bring that back like i think at the time it was it was fine but now it's consi- it's really problematic yeah at the same time like wasn't it just a few years ago that the entire premise of an adam sandler comedy was that his teacher seduced him when he was in high school and like everybody in the movie thinks that's the coolest thing in the entire <laughs> world and i seem to recall that's one of the reasons why people really dislike that movie well I, I think the fact that it's an adam sandler movie is one of the reasons people dislike that movie true enough but like it got made it it, it totally went through like production nobody objected it's the whole premise of the film it's true although it all happens off screen you don't actually see the seduction process it has already happened when the movie gets going and do you think that movie would be more well received if that lady turned out to be a spider I think <laughs> as opposed looked. to susan sarandon yeah was it susan sarandon as the it older was. teacher oh my god yeah I wow, know. she's really gone downhill for that and other reasons <laughs> uh but maybe we should talk about the other weird gender dynamic tom christopher tom christopher uh seduces a 16 year old girl in a manner that is very similar to the movie labyrinth oh i've never seen labyrinth you haven't seen labyrinth no i I, have you not seen labyrinth it's quite famous for david bowie's batch but i don't know anything else about it well david bowie 
very it's interesting because the movie was a sexual awakening for a lot of young girls because you have this adult david bowie playing the goblin king who essentially seduces a young jennifer Connolly, it's jennifer Connolly, right yeah 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 so let me just see if i can find the the famous quotation there's a very uh, fancy ballroom scene where he dances with what is essentially a 14 year old girl He's trying to get her to stay in his goblin kingdom with her. Mm-hmm. And he says, just fear me, love me, do as I say, and I will be your slave. And her response is, my kingdom is great. You have no power over me. But Bowie wants to be her slave? This is the thing that people are still trying to unpack about that. It's a very intense example of what is constantly a trope for movies that are kind of targeted to young girls is that this villain who's much older and very intense and powerful has a fixation on you, this young girl. And that is immensely flattering. You see that here. I don't know why Shurka is, is into Aura. She seems very blank, but he's very intensely into her. Uh, you see it with Twilight. You know, you get away with it because he's actually played by, you know, someone who's age appropriate, but he's supposed to be 300 years old. Yeah. I mean, how much better would Twilight be if it was Tom Christopher as Edwards? <laughs> yeah. You get it with Phantom of the Opera. Like this, this dynamic go- is just played over and over again. So I don't think it's going away. No, this is definitely not going away. They have to be more careful about it, I think, which is why you get somebody like Edward, who is young but isn't. But it's it's something that it, it changes form, but this dynamic of the very powerful magnetic villain being intensely attracted to somebody who he should really have no interest in. And I think it's just like what you have there is, and perhaps you have this with Labyrinth too, I can't speak it because it's one of those like, blind spots that I have as a moviegoer, but maybe the attraction there is just youth. Yeah, probably. I mean, this hasn't gone away. It's still something that, you know, uh, young girls are still sexualized in ways that young boys are not. Uh, But I also think it speaks to that reality that a lot of young girls have where suddenly men start treating them very differently, you know, kind of all of a sudden. And you have this weird kind of feeling of, power and vulnerability and hedonism in a way that you didn't have before and it's very scary but also exciting and it is one of the more frightening and disturbing aspects of wizards of the lost kingdom is that you know she's not being seduced by him in any kind of traditional way like she's not overcome with the mighty good looks of tom christopher man who looks like your high school principal no 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 don't be mean he's i think he's got an actor's look yeah sad actor (laughs) unemployed actor you're terrible (laughs) nonetheless like i i think what makes that so upsetting and what really i think sells shirk as as a villain in this movie the way that the previous tom christopher vehicle did not is you have him hypnotizing aura like you have him essentially using what could be described as row hypnosis um to get her into bed with him now that never happens but that's the plan all along, and that makes him like such a wonderful boo his villain is that he's trying to seduce this teenage girl this way. It's what makes him extra horrible, mm-hmm. and I think that that is very much as we were talking about earlier, very much about how 
the younger a woman is, the more she's kind of prized as this sexual conquest. Mm-hmm. Which just makes me think, like, is this what we're getting here better than uh, Adam, the other kind of sexual coming of age stories given to boys in uh, you know more contemporary times, like American Pie, and what's that one with uh, American Pie Two? <laughs> American Pie Two, one with like what's his name McNasty or something like that. Do you mean McLovin? McLovin, yeah. Right, right. The super bad movie. Uh, Which is all about just trying to get what you can, you know? Yes. Although, the less said about super bad, the better. I don't think it's a good movie <laughs> uh, as a comedy or a film for teen boys. What I think is interesting and I think effective about Wizards of the Lost Kingdom as a kiddie movie is that it portrays sex in as little as it does portray sex, but it portrays sex as something that can hurt you and i'm not saying that the strength of the movie is its conservative viewpoint but rather (laughs) that like there are people out there who uh will take advantage of you and that that's kind of an interesting thing where you have age-appropriate teen actors like both aura and simon appear to be in their mid-teens they they look realistically young as opposed to most teens who are in their 30s in hollywood productions <laughs> right you've got that beverly hills 9021 wizard syndrome but here they're here they're young and seeing them with older people is creepy and like yeah uh, uh, quite effectively like i think that's that's a really good choice and i think that what's interesting there is it's almost as though the uh, the film is a, a warning to, to young people to stay in your lane. It's like, yes, you might be more attracted to people who are older. And I don't know about you, but that was often the case when I was uh, a teen. Is that I, I found I found older women to be older women to be far more interesting than women in my own class. <laughs> um, but that that's dangerous, and that perhaps you know what, if an older person especially when you are not of age of consent. If an older person shows interest in you, they are not a good person. (laughs) They are not so metaphorically a spider person. Mm -hmm. Or a goblin king. Yeah, I think that's a worthwhile thing to take away from this movie. Hey, everybody, it's time for The Shadow 13. It's time for The Shadow 13, a lightning round of 13 fun facts about Wizards of the Lost Kingdom in which Beth and I shoot animated rays at each other. Go, Beth, go! Bo Svensson, who plays Kor the Conqueror, has been working prolifically as an actor since the 60s. Most of his roles have been minor, though he did play a recurring role as Sheriff Buford Pusser in 1978's Walking Tall, a TV spinoff from the hit movie. In fact, Svensson has played a lot of sheriffs, over nine. Plus, he was in both the original and Tarantino remake of The Inglorious Bastards. Sheriff Buford Pusser, bonus fact. Sheriff Buford Pusser was originally played by MST3K veteran Joe Don Baker. Tom Christopher first wet his beak in sci-fi and fantasy with Buck Rogers in the 25th century. In the second season of the 1979 NBC series, Christopher was added to the series as Hawk, a half-man, half-hawk sidekick to the titular Buck. Despite this naming convention, the titular Buck is not half-man, half-deer. Gullfax and Simon have an almost father-son bond. Makes sense considering that both the large bipedal sheepdog and Wolfric, Simon's wizard father, were both played by Edgardo Morera, credited here as Edward Morrow. But Morera would prove to be a triple threat, playing Wolfric, Gullfax, and an older Simon in the spider fantasy sequence. But normal Simon was played by Vidal Peterson, aka Vidal Palacios. 
He had been working as a child actor for some time before this plum role, and afterwards, he played some bit parts on Star Trek and Beverly Hills 90210. His final role was as Rugal, a forlorn Cardassian orphan raised by Bajorans on the hit show Deep Space Nine in 1993. As for the other child actor, Simon's love interest, Aura, is played by Dolores Michaels. This was her only acting role. However, she shares her name with another Hollywood actress whose heyday was in the 1950s and starred in films alongside Joan Collins and Jane Mansfield. More remarkable is her rocky marriage to interior designer Maurice Martin. She claimed after the divorce that her husband treated her like a beautiful art object and made her live a Spartan existence in a shell of a house at Laguna Beach, where there was no hot water or heating. Isn't this a plot of Portrait of the Lady? Screenwriter Ed Naha, credited here as Tom Edwards, incorporates children and a family-friendly vibe to the sword and sorcery genre. Naha would have far greater success by incorporating kids into the mad scientist genre with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which the wizard scribe co-wrote with Stuart Gordon. When the gong is hit at the beginning of the film, Crow screams, Mortal Kombat! The scream is not a reference to the game, but the dance mix created for the movie based on said game. Dragon's Lair beckons you to press play. Dragon's Lair beckons you to press play. 1983's Dragon's Lair was a then-revolutionary arcade game that made use of Don Bluth animation instead of pixels. The key to storing high-quality animation was through the use of a laser disc. When the player was making or failing to make a choice with rapid-fire button mashing, the Laserdisc would receive input to play either the next sequence in the story or a goofy death scene. The game has been ported to computers, mobile phones, DVDs, Blu-rays, and even the Game Boy Color. Gypsy chimes in with a Newsies riff, prompting Jonah and the bots to sing along. Newsies was a live-action Disney movie based on the New York Newsboys strike of 1899. Showing the gulf in time between classic MST3K and its revival, Newsies was a punchline for being such a huge flop in the 90s. Now, it's being revived on Broadway, where it's proven to be a Tony-sweeping hit. Wizards of the Lost Kingdom was originally riffed by Riff Tracks and released in March 2016. It was pulled from the site shortly after release for what many assumed were rights issues with the score. A more likely explanation is that the rights had been bought by Shout Factory for the new season of MST3K. The army of the dead go back to their graves with one last whispered phrase, We belong dead. These were the tragic final words of Frankenstein's monster in James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein. And that's time! Ah, okay. Well, if you're looking for more Ed Naha work, some of his fine screenwriting, uh, then I would point you to the two episodes of Tales from the Crypt Keeper that he wrote. <laughs> Tales from the Crypt, you mean? No, no, no. Tales from the Crypt Keeper. The, oh. This was the animated spinoff of HBO's <laughs> Tales from the Crypt. Oh, boy. On what channel? It was originally on ABC and then moved to CBS for a terrifying final season on a diminished <laughs> budget. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk Crypt Keeper because there's tons of Crypt Keeper impressions in this episode. All of them bad. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought you'd like this because there's so much Crypt Keeper content in it. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I thought that both Tom and Crow, couldn't couldn't they have perhaps, if no one could do a good Crypt Keeper impression, surely head writer Elliot Kalin could have taken over, <laughs> given how many times he's busted out his Crypt Keeper impression on the Flophouse. True enough, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, the morgue the merrier for Crypt Keeper facts, boils and ghouls. <laughs> 
<laughs> but that was the interesting thing. So he didn't write for Tales from the Crypt. Like I said, he wrote for the animated spinoff uh, because Tales from the Crypt was perhaps at its most popular, not in the 50s when the comics were around and not in the 70s where there were two British movies based on EC comics, but in the late 80s and early 90s when HBO revived it as a TV show. And the thing that sticks out in most people's minds, for good reason, is this incredible animatronic puppet that was voiced by John Kassir. And that's where I think everyone's idea of what the Crypt Keeper is comes from. Uh-huh. Because when you see like the Crypt Keeper's first appearance, which was in a, a comic, an EC comic called Crime Patrol number 15, he's just kind of like a, a, a guy. He's a guy with like long, wispy hair. And he seems to always be, like, drooling or he has a mouthful of phlegm or something. <laughs> yeah. He's grotesque in a very human way. Whereas this Crypt Keeper, the puppet, like, his nose has fallen off or rotten away. He's got greenish kind of skin, greenish gray. Uh, he's got some exposed bones. He looks practically like a skull with eyes anyway. Uh, and he's often wearing a dirty old cowl. Yeah, he kind of always reminded me of one of those hairless dogs. Yeah, yeah, the most terrifying kind of dog. Just It has even the wispy hair and everything on the head. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's adorable, like a sphinx cat. Just want to <laughs> give him a big old kiss. So all of these segments on Tales from the Crypt, they were the opening and closing. They were the bookends for stories that were shot by big-time Hollywood directors. Like when Tales from the Crypt started, it was you know Richard Donner. Joel Silver was one of the producers. A lot of big Hollywood hotshots in the 1980s. And that was kind of the appeal of the series at the time, was that you were getting these fun b-movie stories these b-pulp stories done by hollywood top talent and mainstream actors like people who appeared on tales from the crypt include arnold schwarzenegger michael j fox like big time talent like leah thompson big time talent of the time Mm -hmm. despite that despite that hook what people walked away with was just how adorable the crypt keeper was (laughs) <laughs> that's what i looked forward to each and every week and those segments got more and more elaborate which is perhaps why you have the regrettable transformation of the crypt keeper going from a little bit scary where he has a much more gravelly voice in the first few episodes to just being all out camp uh in mm-hmm. the later seasons of the show uh kids love the crypt keeper but there was some concern that it might be too frightening because when they were going to do the animated spin-off, which only distinguished itself by calling it Tales from the Crypt Keeper. Not that there was anything different about it. It was just kid-friendly horror stories that were animated. They were originally going to do it with a live-action Crypt Keeper puppet. They were just going to use the HBO sets for the bookends and tell an animated story for the bulk of the show. Mm-hmm. And that would make sense. It would even save money rather than doing what they did for the show, which was do these brand-new animated Crypt Keeper segments. But there was a problem. When they were in production and developing and going with this idea, the natural concern was that the Crypt Keeper puppet was just too scary for kids. Oh, okay. So they had to do the uh, the animated version instead. But uh, it's funny, they would later go back on this because the Crypt Keeper was so popular that they gave him another kid show. Oh, boy. And this is one that they actually used the puppet for. It was called Secrets of the Crypt Keeper's Haunted House. (laughs) And essentially, 
uh, these kids would have to go through these elaborate kind of like mazes and traps. It was one of those like big event, like test of strength, climbing walls and, and all this sort of stuff. Like it's a really elaborate kids game show. And uh, they they couldn't rely exclusively on the Crypt Keeper puppet to narrate the whole thing because, well, here's the thing about animatronics, Beth. They break down super easy. <laughs> So oftentimes the Crypt Keeper looked like he just had a stroke. That actually reminds me of when I was a kid, we visited Disney World and we went to the Tiki Tiki room Mm -hmm. and halfway through the birds that come, the bird chandelier got stuck and then they just told us to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, please tell me there was just like a voice over the intercom that said, the ride is done now. Please leave. (laughs) Basically. But yeah, so... Uh, one of the things that nearly very excitingly happened was there was a reboot planned of Tales from the Crypt that was supposed to come out, I believe, this year, which was being he- headed by, of all people, M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, no. Yes. So perhaps it's for the best that it's not happening. Do you think that guy deserves a second chance, by the way? No. <laughs> okay. My God, no. I was asking a friend of mine about the film The Visit. Huh? In which old people are scary, and that's the premise of the movie. And I asked a friend of mine, and she told me, uh, she summed up the movie with this phrase. It's like, this is how bad the movie is. The lead kid raps over the end credits. Oh, my God. (laughs) Which only makes me want to see it all the more. But yes, they were going to do a reboot of Tales from the Crypt, and here's the problem that they were running into. When you think of the Crypt Keeper, you probably think of that puppet. HBO owns that puppet. So whenever they've brought back Tales from the Crypt, they had to redesign the Crypt Keeper because they could not use the John Kassir puppet version. So they got Mark Hamill. Yes, naturally you would get Mark Hamill (laughs) to be your Crypt Keeper. The guy looks like it anyway. No, his voice is like dead on. Yeah, that's true. I mean, his Joker voice is basically what the Crypt Keeper turned into, which was equal parts elegant gentleman and uh, laughing maniac. And yeah, unfortunately, it seems like this classic iteration of the Crypt Keeper is no more. Now, would you say the Crypt Keeper is gray or green? <laughs> I would say kind of a kind of a toasty brown. Okay, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, now. What is Simon's tunic? What color is that? Because this might break the internet like that goddamn dress from years ago. <laughs> well, and uh, Jonah and I think it's Servo have like a fight over whether his tunic is mauve or lavender. <laughs> My favorite B. Arthur show was mauve. <laughs> the issue is these aren't copyrighted colors and the names, you know, they're not pinpointed. So mauve can be anything from, like, a bluey-violet to, like, a purpley plum, right? Although I would say that in fashion circles, mauve is definitely more of a reddy hue. So I would say that this is totally more of a lavender look here. Do you agree, or are you... Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that it's definitely more of a, of a lavender, although I really think they missed an opportunity by not calling this film Simon's Lavender Look. <laughs> but it's interesting, because mauve was the first artificial dye color ever produced. I did not know that. So, uh, the color mauve, as, a, as an artificial dye, was invented in uh, 1858 by William Henry Perkin. And so he was originally trying to find... Uh, an artificial synthesized anti-malarial quinine. Hmm. Uh, but he ended up getting this weird sludge color, but it ended up 
having a nice light purple shade that very importantly didn't fade with washing or exposure to light. And what is very interesting about this mauve color is that this is one of the first instances of chemistry being used to create a consumer product. Before then, science was mostly just something that people dabbled in and maybe, you know, trying to solve problems, like social problems, like malaria. Mm -hmm. This is one of the first instances where science was used to try to, like, make profit. Hmm. But it, was, it, it wasn't, as you said, it, it wasn't intended that way, at least not at first. No, it's one of those, like, uh, accidents, like Pyrex, you know, where he dropped it and it didn't break instantly or something like that, but... Uh, it's just one of those happy accidents, and he made a lot of money. People love this color. They love mauve. Yeah, they loved mauve, and he was eventually knighted for it. Whoa! Yeah. Knights of the mauve table. <laughs> but what I find interesting is purple as a color. Uh, I don't know, maybe not because you're a dude, but I feel like a lot of teen, a lot of young girls go through a purple phase. Hey, I went through a purple phase. Did you go through a purple face? That's awesome. Yeah, it's the it's the best color. I still quite like purple as a. I would say it's it's the best thing to wear if you're wearing like a, a button down shirt, but you're leaving it open. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like that that I think is a good look. At least that is my default look. Yeah. Um, but more of the the pastel lavender lilac thing. I feel like a lot of uh, girls when they're trying to move away from pink because it's very you know it's so stereotyped as a girl color, but they still want something feminine. Will often go through like I'm going to paint my my room lavender phase in their early teens. And what they find out is uh, purple is a hard color to live with. It is uh, <laughs> notoriously a difficult color to decorate with. Is, isn't the name of Grimace's autobiography, Purple is a Hard Color to Live With? <laughs> it, it is something that you will rarely see in like interior decor because it's just, unlike something like, you know, millennial pink, it's, it's not always that flattering and it's both cold and warm and it, it, it just tends to take a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. I think it was Martha Stewart who recommended like to uh, paint your guest room purple because people won't stay as long. Uh, there's a story about how when the Raptors first came out as the, the logo, this was a time, this, uh, this was actually a recent 99% invisible if you want to go check that out, but they talk about how new sewing techniques uh, in the 90s opened up the opportunity for newer and more interesting logos. And so uh, they kind of got away from the traditional colors of basketball. And the first one was the Hornets. They, they brought in the teal and it, it drove people crazy. So uh, when the Raptors came out, they used a dinosaur in purple. And guess what people immediately thought of? Well, naturally. Grimace. <laughs> Barney. Barney the purple dinosaur. That's not an association you want for your basketball team. Yeah, it's funny because, like, the with the use of the Raptor, I, I, I tend to think of the Toronto Raptors as the most 90s thing. Like, it could not be more <laughs> 90s unless they were called the Toronto Fanny Packs. I know. It was even at the time, and I was, like, 11. I was just like, this isn't going to age well, guys. Mm. Not to mention, all those dinosaur mascots are going dis to disappear when the time comes for the Toronto Rapture. <laughs> Although I do appreciate their uh, inflatable mascot. <laughs> I appreciate it when he falls down. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think we found the kingdom that was once lost. Uh, Chris, do you have any more fun wizard facts for us before we leave this MST3K experiment? 
Well, I do, but it's not quite a wizard fact. So you mentioned way back at the beginning of the episode that in the invention exchange, the Mads have come up with the sponsor clock, where each of the different hours are named after different sponsors. So as you said, eight o'clock is eight watchers, and both seven and 11 o'clock are 7-Eleven o'clock. So where did they get this idea? Well, I have a theory. Have either of you read the novel Infinite Jest? No. No. I have been using no. it to prop my window open. It is it is a quite quite large novel. It's 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 upwards of a thousand pages. Came out in nineteen ninety six. Was written by uh David Foster Wallace, a uh, interesting and problematic person. And this was his big work that at a certain point you were sort of culturally obliged to at least try to read if you were a certain type of person. So I tried to read it and I bounced pretty hard off it, but whatever. Early on, you at least get to learn that in this fictional next Sunday AD future world, that each of the years has been sponsored by a corporate sponsor for tax revenue. The first year of subsidized time, it becomes the year of the Whopper followed by the year of the Tux medicated pad, the year of the trial-sized dove bar, the year of the Purdue wonder chicken, the year of the whisper quiet Maytag dishmaster. <laughs> so basically it, that list was actually kind of what f- turned me off. Finally, I just got sick of <laughs> that humor <laughs> such yeah. as it is. Um, but definitely people who stuck through the novel seem to get something out of it. I don't know. But yeah, that was uh, seeing the opening segment. It was just a big flashback to massive novel Infinite Jest. Yeah, we didn't talk much about the segments. Nothing to talk about, says me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think this was strong for segments. It was not. I agree. If you've been affected by the issues on this show, if you've ever kept a crypt, or if you'd like to ask Beth and Adam anything, get in touch with us. Our website is itsjustashow.com, or we're on Twitter at it is just a show. We'd love to hear from you. It's Just a Show is a podcast from Megaphonic FM. Find all our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm, including You're Not Funny, in which Adam and I talk about comedy, and sometimes he quizzes me on true or false Crypt Keeper sketches. You'll have to search through the archives to find them, and hopefully you'll enjoy it when you do. Thanks again to all our Patreon supporters. You can support It's Just a Show and access some super fan bonus bits from this episode and a bunch of older episodes by going to itsjustashow.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash itsjustashow. And if you want to follow up on anything that was mentioned today on It's Just a Show, you'll find links in our show notes at itsjustashow.com slash episode slash 31. So what are we watching next? Well... There is a second Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, right? I mean, they mentioned it at the end of the episode. Will we be watching it next? Is that the sort of thing we would do? Will this be a trilogy of their just some shows about sword and sorcery films? Yeah, obviously. Next time we're going to be watching season 11, episode 11, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, part 11, uh, two, part two. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Fun fact about Wizards of the Lost Kingdom 2, whereas this episode has been something of a fan favorite in terms of the reaction from Misty's, the sequel, not so much. Joel has stated that he regrets doing it. Oh boy, can't wait. Anyway, until next time. Don't revive your dead warriors before they're hatched. And our spell on you ends as of now. Take it away, theme squad. 
The morgue, the merrier for Cryptkeeper facts, boils and ghouls.